Please turn with me in your Bibles to the epistle of 1 Peter. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let us pay heed to the reading of God's holy word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that today we would come under your word, that we would submit to it, that it would instruct us, and that we would not play the game of imagining that we construct what truth is, or we decide what your word is, or how we ought to live. We come submitting wholeheartedly to you and ask that you would illumine us by your spirit and give us more of Jesus and less of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we come to uh, 1 Peter, and 1 Peter has been nicknamed the Epistle of Hope. There's a good little blurb in your bulletin from Gerhardus Voss discussing the nature of hope in 1 Peter, but we'll get into that uh, next time Pastor goes on vacation. But I trust and pray today that God will illuminate your minds so that you might receive hope and assurance to the end that you might be ready to suffer and obey for Christ's sake as you patiently await his appearing. Now, before we jump into our text, it's useful to consider, you know, who authored this? Where was it written? When was it written? These are the topics of what theologians call special introduction. Um, And usually I don't pay much attention to that, but it's worth mentioning today. The traditional viewpoint, of course, is that 1 Peter is written by Peter the Apostle Peter, and it's written sometime before A.D. 70, uh, and that it's written in Rome. And, you know, there's solid evidence for two out of three, and by the time we're done, I'm going to argue for three out of three of those. There's no significant reason to doubt the date or location of its authorship, In an epistle that's rich with talk of a spiritual temple, it would be really odd if we saw Peter not mention, or whoever the author is, not mention the catastrophic destruction of the temple by the Romans in A.D. 70. So it's definitely a pre-A.D. 70 date for the book. The epistle's mentioning of Babylon in chapter 5, verse 13, gives us direction to understand that this is Rome. Babylon was commonly referred to Uh, as uh, Rome was commonly referred to as Babylon by both Jewish and Greek writers in the first century. So the major challenge to the traditional view has focused on the supposed impossibility of Peter being the author. And the basic argument is this. Peter, a country bumpkin fisherman, could not possibly have written with such a high caliber of Greek proficiency. That is, this is really good Greek, right? And we couldn't expect a fisherman to possibly do that. 
Now, such scholars are obviously aware that GSL, that is Greek as a second language, was a thing in the ancient world post, I don't know, Alexander the Great. It's kind of a big proliferation of Greek language and culture, right? Um, but they just can't get their minds around the fact that Peter might employ such rhetoric. Now, it's curious, though, and I, I know we have half a dozen educators here. Imagine you tell your boss, I can't expect any student to master the language this well with such proficiency because of their background. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's a standard where you're required to prove that you believe all people can learn things with a high degree of proficiency. So that's just sort of a, a curious point. But in the 18th and 19th century, it became really vogue to argue just that. Now, I gotta confess, as a former ESL teacher, it probably is the minority that you would find someone without all those, you know, all of the supports possible um, to use a language with that kind of proficiency, but they do exist. It's not unheard of. I've seen several students without the best schools, without foreign teachers, pick up English just fine. So that's an interesting point just in terms of uh, bias concerning the ability for someone to learn just because they're a fisherman. So beloved, I submit to you that something else is going on here for those who want to argue that it's written by someone other than Peter. The early church, later the Eastern church and the Western church in both its Protestant and Catholic varieties all accepted Peter as the author up until about the 19th century, late 19th century. And of course, it was Protestants who argued for the fracturing of Scripture in general. A tendency emerged of breaking Scripture into little bits that are supposedly unrelated. And if this is successfully argued, it enables you to argue for a mere human document as opposed to the unfolding unified revelation of God in the Old and New Testaments, attested to by the prophets by the Lord Jesus himself, by the apostles, and the early church. So it's interesting to see right out of the gate the sort of naturalistic presuppositions, that is, what you're seeking to prove can't exist and therefore I won't hear you. Um, it, it's hard to learn when you bury yourself in a bunker like that. Now even should we conclude that First Peter is too well written for a country bumpkin in a a fisherman like Peter, an easy enough explanation is found in the text itself. In 1 Peter 5.12, Peter, as he's issuing his greeting, says, By Silvanus, a Greek dude, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. So he's saying, look, my secretary, through whom I've written, uh, sends this on you. Well, in short, barring a naturalist bias against supernatural revelation of God, who sovereign and exercises lordship over all his creation, the traditional view is solid. Peter wrote this, and beloved, it's good that Peter wrote this, and this is the reason why I brought special introduction into the pulpit today. Beloved, think about Peter. As we begin this study, it's useful to remember that Peter is the author and that it gives us hope. Peter opens the letter with his name, which is customary in the Greek world. He identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And as an apostle, Peter is on a mission with the full authority of his master, the Lord Christ. Remember, however, that Peter has been called other things preceding being called an apostle. He's originally named Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, by his parents. In Matthew 16, 
after Peter gives the apostolic confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus turns to him and he says, uh, Peter, you are the rock upon which the church shall be founded. Soon thereafter, however, Peter finds out that Jesus intends to go to the cross. Peter intends to suffer, Jesus intends to suffer and die, and that does not calculate in Peter's understanding of the mission of the Messiah. So Jesus gives him another name. Jesus says, uh, Peter, Satan, get behind me. And then he says, you're a stumbling block. Literally, it's, you're a rock. He calls him a rock, but this time he's a rock, not in the sense of something solid to be built upon, a foundation, but rather you are a stumbling block to who I am. Get behind me, Satan, is what Peter is called. Later, Jesus identifies Peter as a loveless traitor, and he confirms it when the rooster crows three times. So Peter has been called other things besides an apostle. Beloved, the very fact that this letter is penned by Peter, who identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, gives sinners like us hope. God is able to change the story. God is able to recreate, restore, or preserve even the vilest sinner. Those who misunderstand the mission of the Messiah? Yeah, those kind of guys. Those who deny the Lord repeatedly? Yeah, those kind of people. Beloved, I want you to notice, though, that this letter is not about Peter nor his religious experience with Jesus. No, this letter is about the apostolic gospel. It's about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. More specifically, it's about the participation of the people of God in the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow. Peter addresses this letter to God's chosen people, those who are precious in his sight. In the Old Covenant, you'll remember, the Israelites were God's chosen people. But here, as elsewhere in the New Testament, we're taught that all who trust in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, all of those are God's people. Peter again and again brings up the Old Testament imagery that used to apply only to Israel, and he applies it to those who have faith. He applies it to the church. A few amp, uh, examples will establish my point. In 1.4, 1 Peter 1.4, he mentions the inheritance. And beloved, you'll recall in the Old Testament, the inheritance belonged only to the seed of Abraham. That is, those who could trace their lineage back to Abraham would receive the inheritance. But we know in the New Covenant from Galatians 3.29 that that inheritance is such that anyone can be a child of Abraham. Those who come to the Savior in repentance and faith are part of the inheritance of Abraham. And this inheritance, of course, is a people of every tribe, of every tongue, and every nation. And they get there by faith in the Messiah. Chapter 2, verse 9 is another example of how Old Testament imagery is transferred into the church. You were a chosen race, a holy priesthood. I'm sorry, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This echoes Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6 where God promised Israel if they obeyed the covenant, 
that, he, that they would be God's kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This idea is transferred directly to the church. In 1.1, though, Peter introduces the main metaphor of this letter. And it, too, refers to something very Jewish that's now, you guessed it, applied to the church. As God's chosen people, they're described as a scattered community, as a diaspora community. Now, this term diaspora is commonly applied amongst people who are scattered for different reasons. We can think of the African diaspora during the time of colonialism, where it's not in the best interest of the African peoples, they're scattered, right? You can think of the Korean diaspora. You can go anywhere and find Korean folks. There's this idea that people spread out for different reasons. And for the diaspora community, if you guys remember last time when we uh, were together and I, I led, um, established the idea that the diaspora for the Jews in the Old Covenant is because of the curse, right? They're sent out because of the curse. Well, they're scattered away from their homeland due to persecution or exile. Now, it's interesting that we see uh, that the scattering here, there's no sense of curse, okay? There's no sense of curse associated with the, the scattering or the diaspora of God's people as we look at them in 1 Peter. But I want you to see that Peter's not using diaspora or scattered in the way it was traditionally used in Jewish circles. Firstly, the churches that Peter's writing to are predominantly Gentile, although there were certainly Jews in their midst. And you can look at chapter 1, verse 18, and 2, verse 10 to confirm that. Secondly, Peter isn't calling this mixed group of Jews and Gentiles a group of people scattered away from Israel as though that's their hope and their goal. No, no. They're not scattered away from Israel as a result of the curse of the covenant. Rather, He's not calling them scattered away from Israel as a curse. Rather, we see that in more detail as we look in 1, 3 through 5, Peter's talking about scattering away from a common homeland of all Christians when he calls them a scattered people. So they're scattered all over Asia Minor, but Peter's making the argument that their homeland is heaven. They're, they're not away from Israel. They're not away from that promised land. They're scattered away from the promised land that Israel, a land flowing with milk and honey, was but a picture of. Israel, a land flowing with milk and honey, of course, is a picture of a place where you benefit from the bounty of the land apart from the sweat of your brow. It is a picture of a place where the curse is gone. And Peter is saying, as you're scattered people, you're scattered away from your true homeland, heaven. In addition to being described as a diaspora or a scattered community, Peter calls them aliens, temporary residents, or pilgrims in the various provinces of Asia Minor, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and uh, Bithynia, basically what's modern-day Turkey today. This idea of God's people as temporary residents or aliens that are scattered about in this world is the basic identity for Christians, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're in the first or the 21st century. Notice that Peter is not calling us to be pilgrims or to be scattered. He's, he calls us pilgrims. You are pilgrims. That's your identity. You are not of this place. Do you think of yourself as a temporary resident away from your heavenly homeland? According to the Apostle Peter, 
The Christian is the one who lives in a world as an alien, as one who has no permanent place here in this age. Paul states it this way in Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, you, if you are Christ's, you are like Abraham. Abraham was chosen by God. He was the heir of the promises of God. God had promised him a land, a people, and that all nations would be blessed through him. Yet while living in this promised land, Abraham did not build a castle or a city. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 9 through 10 says, By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham was looking forward to an eternal home whose foundations are unshakable, to heaven itself where all God's promises to Abraham find their complete fulfillment. Beloved, are you looking to heaven? Do you place your hope fully on the day that Christ shall be revealed? Or have you let the worries of this world rob you of that vision? As Brother Guy mentioned earlier, uh, regardless of the results of an election coming soon, God is sovereign. And even if your favorite candidate and your favorite policies become the reality, beloved, they are not the kingdom to come. Now, Abraham's looking forward to that home. Perhaps we could think about Abraham and his stay in the promised land, nonetheless. Uh, nonetheless. Um, we could imagine that as a, uh, like a weekend camping trip, right? As us as strangers in the land, we could think about it in those terms, right? You go away for a few days and you might not have a shower, you might not have the best food, but you're thinking, I'm camping. I can deal with the fact that I'm not using my favorite shampoo. This little stuff that we got from, I don't know, a hotel years ago, it'll have to do, right? But you're able to persevere because you know you're going home and that you'll partake in good showers and good food and your favorite shampoo when you get there. Well, beloved, Abraham had that kind of perception. It's called faith. By faith, Abraham perceived a greater heavenly reality and would not content himself with anything less than the promise of God in its fullness. Beloved, we too are strangers in this world, scattered about with no permanent resting place here. So to you, aliens in this world, scattered away from heaven, children of the diaspora, Peter has good news. The good news is that your journey in this earth as a resident alien is not yours alone. God never calls us to do something that he's not already done himself. Each person of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, work for your redemption. Your journey, beloved, is one that has been lovingly planned from eternity past by the Father. You were chosen for this journey according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, it's good to note when we talk about foreknowledge in the Bible, what's in mind there is not the common evangelical imagery of God with like, I don't know, a what do they call those things? Those pirate monocle? Is that the right monocle? The one, whatever. What's it called? Telescope, right? Okay. 
Uh, it's not that God has a really powerful telescope, like he has access to a better Walmart than us. He gets better telescopes, right? No, no, that is not the idea. It's not God looking down through the corridors of history with phenomenal godly technology, so to speak. No, he's not looking down and going, that one's going to choose me, right? Um, that's not what's in mind here. When the scripture speaks about God's foreknowledge in relation to its people, it refers to God's loving personal involvement and concern from all eternity for his elect. And, you know, the, we'll get into it in a second. Therefore, the Gentiles of the churches that Peter wrote to, and you as well, as you're united to Christ, are the elect objects of God's plan and loving concern from all eternity. To unpack this idea of foreknow a little bit more, the Greek is prognosko, and it says in uh, 120, he was chosen before the creation of the world in the NIV, but the NASB and ESV render it better, which is, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake. basically prognosco. Didn't plan on going here. Um, This idea of foreknowledge is the idea that God loves you beforehand. And this is used, uh, you know, the the Hebrew verb yada is the idea of know. And it's a very personal knowing, like Adam knew Eve. And that carries over, that idea of yada or to know carries over into foreknowledge, foreknowing. And so the idea is that the kind of personal, intricate, serious love that God, uh, that uh, Adam had for Eve is the kind of love that God has for us, that it's intimate, right? And so that's the kind of speech that we must think of when we think of foreknowledge, not the, uh, the viewing device whose name I've forgotten again. Telescope. telescope. Yeah, no telescopes in mind here. God doesn't need a telescope, but he loves you. He loves you if you're in Christ, and he loved you from the foundation of the world. Just as Jesus Christ was the object of the Father's love from all eternity, so are those who belong to Christ. Beloved, see the heights to which God has exalted you. You who were once far away from the covenants and the promises of God are now brought near to God. You who were, you were foreknown or foreloved with Christ. Now, it's important to note here that Peter uses these concepts of foreknowledge and predestination not as subjects of philosophical speculation. And I think in our tradition, sometimes we get bogged down in that. Now, certainly we need to say what Scripture says and not say what it doesn't say. But, beloved, I would submit to you that in the hands of the apostles, predestination is an encouraging doctrine, okay? It gives the people of God assurance. John Calvin argued that the chief sin of the Roman church in the medieval period was that it robbed God's people of their assurance. And as we look at the apostles, we see that predestination is for the purpose of giving you assurance. Beloved, see that your preaching and sharing of this doctrine does likewise. Indeed, it's true for those who are steeped in their own pride that the electing Love of God is a stumbling block because they equate it with favoritism. Yet for those who've known this love, know that it's a most humbling doctrine. It speaks of a God who had to seek us out because we were the most wretched, just like everyone else. 
Never imagine that you can uh, plumb the depths of God's electing grace. Never imagine that you can find some merit in yourself as the cause for you being a Christian. You are a Christian because of God's grace. Yet how can God love wicked sinners? How can God foreknow us with Christ? Beloved, it's only because your journey has already been accomplished by Christ. Chapter 1, verse 2 of 1 Peter speaks of the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. You've been chosen in order that you might be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Now, this sprinkling calls to mind all of the the sprinkling of the old covenant, and we'll just look at Hebrews chapter 9 for a moment. Turn with me there, uh, Hebrews 9, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews 9:19 When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people he took the blood of calves together with water scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people he said this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and that without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence, Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Beloved, you have not been sprinkled in the blood of bulls and goats that were mere pictures or anticipations of Christ to come. Rather, you have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. By the shedding of His blood, He has paid the penalty for all your sins, past, present, and future. Your journey has been accomplished, in part, by the death of Christ. Now, some of you ask, what do you mean in part? Isn't the death of Christ sufficient to extinguish the wrath of God for all of my sins? Of course, of course. But isn't isn't there more to our justification? Imagine for a moment that somehow you could go and you could get, I don't know, uh, you could declare bankruptcy and find yourself uh, not responsible for the debts you owe. That's what the blood of Christ does for us on the cross. But the fact of the matter is, and I know this from some family members who've went bankrupt again and again, maybe again, is that you still have to have positive economic righteousness, right? You still need to pay the bills. You still need to go to work. You still need to take care of things. And beloved, the fact of the matter is, having our sins paid for by the death of Christ still leaves us wanting a perfect righteousness. We still need a perfect righteousness. 
So our journey is not complete only with the death of Christ. As vile sinners, the payment for all our sins alone would not usher anyone into heaven. It would merely render us neutral before the sight of our God who demands perfect righteousness. So we need to be positively righteous. It's not only the death of Christ that is applied to the Christian, but, beloved, also the life of Christ. It's the very obedience of Christ that is applied to the Christian by faith. Literally, the text of verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2 of 1 Peter, it reads, For obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Now, beloved, this could be taken two ways, both of which are important biblical teachings. So if I fail to ascertain which is exactly right here, the worst I'll be doing is teaching biblical truth from the wrong passage, okay? First possibility is this for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. It could mean that just as the sprinkled blood of Christ is applied to us, so is Christ's obedience. As Christ's obedience is applied to us, God sees you as clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He sees you as a perfect law keeper, one who is just, right? And this is 1 Corinthians 1.30. Jesus Christ has become for us our, oh boy, righteousness, holiness, and redemption, right? Uh, that idea of imputation of Christ's righteousness. Romans 5.19 and 10.4, 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Philippians 3.9 speak similarly. That is... We, in the sight of God, as we're united to His Son by faith, are seen by God as positively righteous. Jesus has taken the robes of His righteousness and placed them on us, and we are acceptable in the Beloved. Now, another possible reading of this passage for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ is it could mean our personal obedience to Christ as we walk by faith. The New International Version takes this interpretation, and they translate it like this. For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. And of course, that's the biblical idea of Ephesians 2.10, that after we've been saved by grace through faith, God has pre-appointed good deeds for us to do that we should walk in them. And that's certainly a biblical idea as well. Both of these statements are true. If we back up and we focus on the broader biblical teaching, we have been foreknown so that we might receive the obedience of Christ, that we might have His righteousness imputed to us, and that we should be obedient to Christ. Yet, beloved, notice that the Father's loving plan and the Son's obedience and shed blood for you is communicated, transferred, given to you by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. We become heavenward participants in this journey as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, as He pulls us away from the world as the object of God's love applies the benefits to Christ to us more and more, as we come and we hear the Word of God preached, as we participate in the Lord's Supper where we see Christ crucified, where we see the, the sanctioned image of Christ, that we see Him as a crucified Savior paying for our sins, telling us to remember that until He comes and that we should hope for His coming. Beloved, the Spirit does that through word and sacrament. And also as you personally read your scriptures, 
as you come face to face and you reorient your thoughts to become more like God's thoughts. Well, beloved, because the triune God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has gone before you to accomplish this journey to your homeland, we receive the blessing of God. The apostle says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Beloved, as God's foreloved, purchased, and sanctified children, you are the objects of God's abundant grace and peace. Rejoice in this. And beloved, even if you are scattered, and Peter says we all are, we're scattered because we are blessed, not cursed. We're scattered about to the four corners of the earth to be neighbors to people, far as the curse be found, that we might share with them the reason for the hope that is within us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it calls us to something bigger than us. Uh, you enmesh us in your drama of redemption, and you show us that we are your people and you are our God. We ask, Lord, that you would be faithful and that you would be just, you'd forgive us of our sins, and that you would give us hope to be uh, showcases of your grace this week. Help us to faithfully point people to Jesus and not us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.